Welcome to Decision Space, the podcast that takes place between the turns of your favorite game. I'm Jake. And I'm Brendan. And today we are doing our third What We Talk About episode, this time focusing on competitive play which I am super thrilled to get into. We have a ro- robust notes on this one, so a lot to cover. Yeah, I feel like there's a, we're like working on a book chapter here. But before we do that, uh, I want to offer you just the opportunity if you want to apologize to the entire uh, Terraforming Mars community about your uh, baseless comments about the planner milestone. It just seems like people are coming out of the woodwork to tell you that it's a viable strategy. I think there's some planners out there in the world that I've really upset by saying that this is not a viable path to victory. BGG threads, there have been some comments. There were a few that were like, you know, Brendan, you really should read other BGG threads before coming to this one and being so naive. And I was like, you got me. I should have researched. I should have planned more and and done a little bit more reading. I don't know if you've seen this yet, but I posted on the Reddit Terraforming Mars page and we got one comment that was like, great podcast, like good idea for a show. Like maybe you should have experts on because like the planner milestone is super good. (sighs) I'm so frustrated. (laughs) it's funny because the feedback we've been getting before was like you guys research your videos so thoroughly and strategic miss on that one no not at all i mean this shows about like our subjective experience i'm just giving you a hard time and you know i think if if that's the way that it struck you in your you know first x plays of it then that's valuable context elsewhere but i did just think that was funny and it's awesome to have such a good reaction and to that last episode and a lot of discussion started about it. Definitely, definitely, definitely. All right. Well, before we get into the main topic, uh, we're going to try out a brand new segment. uh, And this is something we're going to experiment with and and perhaps incorporate in all of our shows moving forward. And, And this is the opportunity to just say one thing that's kind of been on our mind over the past week uh, related to games Uh, Just something short that, you know, maybe it's a gameplay that we don't feel like warrants an entire episode, but it's something we want to share with with our audience or or just something else that struck you in the news. So uh, calling this segment, Where Is My Mind, which is based on that uh, Pixie song, or I feel like the song that people in our age cohort probably know best as that song at the end of Fight Club. (laughs) Yep, Totally. I'm, so when you first pitched this, I, I was trying to think of different ways we could say it to make it to make it really pop. Like, where is my mind? But I feel like the Pixie song probably is just yeah. We'll see. Yeah, I was kind of I was gonna you know just do a <laughs> <laughs> you know. All right. Uh, so you know, it's like you think about something random while you're playing a board game. So you ask yourself, where is my mind? <laughs> So do you want me to go first or do you want to yeah, go first? Where's your mind, Jake? All right. So this week I was struck by some news that I was seeing in other podcasts and, and shared around Twitter, which is, uh, and, and, and it makes a lot of sense because I've been thinking about competitive games for this podcast. And and next week, if, you're, if you want to pre-plan your turn with us, we'll be covering Magic the Gathering. Um, so this is Magic the Gathering news, which is, universes beyond so this is like a major major thing in the magic community and what it is is that wizards of the coast has announced that they will be doing uh creating magic cards like real magic cards that you can use in competitive play for i think anything besides standard 
uh, based on other universes outside of of the you know the universe that they've created for magic with all the different planes and multiverse. So the first announced product is some commander decks based on Warhammer and Warhammer 40k, and then the, uh, an entire set based on Lord of the Rings. Um, so this is throwing a lot of people for a loop uh, who are heavily invested in magic. And, uh, and, and I think the, the reactions have been all over the place. You know, people who are, you know, hobby gamers uh, and not necessarily magic player first have, it seems like, been really warmly receptive to this. Uh, the opportunity to, you know, play magic in a more contained way with an IP they love has been a big hit. Uh, and then hardcore magic players, I think the the reaction has been pretty negative, uh, seeing this as something that's immersion breaking, uh, you know, and not wanting to play, you know, against a SpongeBob SquarePants sometimes down the line or or whatever. But I just want to share my two cents. I think I'm coming at it from somewhere in the middle. And I completely, you know, I think if if you're excited about it, that's fantastic. If you're disappointed by this, like that's totally understandable. Um, but at the end of the day, I think the most important thing for me is that it just, it's an opportunity to bring new people into this hobby, magic, but then board gaming in general. Uh, and, you know, magic is notoriously kind of, a, a monolithic group of people playing it. If you've ever been to a magic gathering tournament. Uh, so, you know, just cause, you know, you've been playing Magic for a long time doesn't really mean you own that product. And I think changes, bringing in new life, bringing in new people, to me, it is a positive thing. I have a quick response and then I'll hop into where my mind has been. But I'm struck that Wizards of the Coast didn't decide to call this Deckmaster. So if you flip over any Magic the Gathering card ever made, uh, printed on the back of the card, still to this day, it's still the same card back, it says Deckmaster. And the, the reason why it says that is originally Peter Atkinson, the, the person who started Wizards of the Coast and originally published with Richard Garfield Magic the Gathering, his idea was that they would have multiple games made in the Magic the Gathering style where all the cards could be mixed together and played together. And that's why they put Deckmaster on the back of it. So it was going to be this whole line of TCGs that you could intermix because they shared a rule set. Now it's like, what, over 25 years later, and literally the idea that they never got around to, or I don't know if they never got around to it or it just didn't quite come together, has come to fruition and they missed the opportunity to call it Deckmaster and bring it all full circle. So I, I'm just sort of laughing at the news because I feel like everyone's reactions are like, this is like this brand new idea. And it's in some ways, it's this is just the longest, uh, the longest planned product line in the history of modern games. Not to belabor the point more than we already have is, you know, it's something that's changed so much from even yeah. when I first started playing it. It's a completely different game now than it was, you know, back in 2000, like totally different types of cards, different rules overhauled completely. So, you know, it's something that is just going to keep changing and shifting. Uh, and also, you know, Magic the Gathering was supposed to be the first set and like the next set was supposed to be like Magic the something else. And so they just... You know, struck gold, stuck with that to this point. So, you know, it's been, you know, however many years of this and, and I guess something else is on the horizon. So that's cool. Totally. And more is generally better. So I guess in, in light of keeping in my mind quick and, and pithy, which we are already <laughs> we're already like expanding into a whole topic here. We're doing uh, such a good job of that. Yeah. Yeah. On my mind this week is I recently with my wife and uh, one of her camp friends, and her partner started playing bridge. So we played bridge recently 
And it was really fun and interesting. And uh, I mentioned this a little bit in the Fox in the Forest episode, but we, I think we're, we're doing something which is fun for the context of this conversation that we're about to have, which is that none of us have invested too much in researching bridge strategy. So we're all learning the game at a similar rate. And that's been, been really fun. Obviously, we all play trick-taking games, uh, but like not in terms of researching the actual bidding structures of bridge and stuff. So maybe in a future on my mind, I'll keep, I'll keep the bridge saga going and see where the bridge leads us. Sounds good. That was well done. All right, I'm taking notes. Next time, way quicker. <laughs> well, all right, so that's that's where is my mind. If if you like that topic or that little segment, let us know and uh, we'll keep it going. Uh, but let's, without any further ado, hop into our juicy main topic on competitive play. And I think the first thing we should do is kind of define competitive play is. So I'll throw it to you first, Brendan. Like, what is your definition for competitive play. Okay, so I tried to draft a, a definition for this, and I tried to be as expansive as possible. So I think I, I have a working definition here, and it's, let me know what you, what you think, Jake. Uh, competitive play is a state of gameplay where the outcome is given increased consequences. Consequence. So this could be a prize, or it could be a claim or uh, social clout. Uh, maybe put differently, competitive play is an amplified magic circle with special stakes. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. Um... And I, I think I didn't uh, do the time to come up with my own definition, but the, the things I was thinking about uh, when it comes to competitive play, the thing that separates it from a normal, you know, friendly competitive game is the fact that there's stakes or somehow, you know, even if you don't want to have stakes of, of prizes uh, or money, potentially, uh, I was th- like, I think for it to be competitive play, there has to be some way for that result to be tracked or recorded in a way that makes winning or losing more meaningful uh, than a game that everyone's just packing up at the end of the night and uh, you know going home like there's something about that game that has to like live on a little further beyond that yeah and I think it's a spectrum here too right like so I was thinking about if you went and played for example you play a lot of disc golf and when you go disc golfing the range of like, you could go and you could just play disc golf and not record how many shots you're taking on a given hole, right? You could just play super casually, go and throw the disc as many times as it takes to to play through the course, get in all the holes and you're done. You could also record your scores where you're not necessarily caring who wins, but you're tracking how you're doing, Mm -hmm. um, which is a sort of different level of competition than you could get even more formal, obviously with like a tournament or something like that. Um, So I think... Okay, you're smiling because here we are again. No. Brendan's brought up sports in the first 10 minutes. Let's just do a <laughs> sports episode so we can get it over with and apologize to everyone. But but interestingly, I think sports do a really good job sometimes of having casual competitive play where things sort of matter and you added this little bit extra, but it's not hyper competitive like a, a tournament setting for an offline card game or something might be. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a great point. And I think similarly, but... Uh, perhaps a little bit different is I think that kind of gets into a nuance of like what it means to play a game competitively, which I think is a little bit different um, because like to, to your point about disc golf, I could bet my buddy that I play with five bucks, you know, the winner of the round, uh, you know, gets, you know, $5 from the other person. Uh, and then, so like there's mm. stakes there, but to me there's, that's like a little bit different than, um, like playing the game competitively because, you know, we could still be out there, you know, laughing, 
drinking beer, you know, <laughs> uh, throwing in random rules. All right, let's we'll, we'll both take two shots on this tea or whatever. Sure. You know, and that, so there, there's like there's like a little bit of uh, I think I think difference there between like okay, so this is a competitive game with stakes, uh, but we're not really out there playing competitively. Um, so so for me, I think uh, you know what it means to play a game competitively is both in the moment you know and it's kind of like a judgment call of like is this like a competitive thing and 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 generally i think there has to be some kind of like uh for me to consider myself like a competitive player of a game there has to be some kind of like official rating system or like organized play that i'm participating in i think that's one thing uh and and the other thing i'd say uh, i I think a telltale sign of it when i'm like a competitive player of a certain game i might practice for it you know if if i'm practicing to improve at at one aspect of the game whether it's a a board game card game or sport or video game uh, that's a pretty telltale sign that i am interested in in being a competitive player of it and you know i'm playing it competitively yeah there's a lot to unpack there so i think that for me, competitive play doesn't always have to mean that there's organized competition. Uh, for example, uh, during college, my roommates and I built a ladder golf set, and there was never sort of a formalized competition created around it. Um, we never said, okay, we're going to have a tournament this weekend and track the results and the scores. Uh, okay, but what, I would, what, what is ladder golf? Do you know golf? what ladder golf is? Okay, so no. ladder golf is a backyard game similar to maybe um, like cornhole. Except you build, uh, this is going to be very hard to to visualize. Similar to Cornhole, it's set up where there are goals on both sides. So Cornhole, of course, a game where you throw bean bags or maybe washers uh, a a distance of 10 or 15 feet through through holes, right? So like it's it's set up similarly to like Cornhole or Horseshoes, except Ladder Golf is, uh, there's a ladder with three rungs. Usually they're made out of- Okay, I've seen this. I've seen this, yeah. You can buy buy them made out of wood too. And then you have um, these objects that are two balls connected by a rope. And then you toss the rope across a distance, maybe 10 to 20 feet, and try to get them on different rungs of the ladder, which have different points ascribed to them. So it's sort of like a backyard game. and my we got increasingly competitive without ever having strict competition and i agree that i would just go out and practice on my own even when we weren't playing games because i was in the headspace of competition and that i always wanted to beat my roommates at this game even though it wasn't formalized but i really cared and i wanted to be the best ladder golf player in the house so that's something where like the stakes of the system are uh reputation and as a community we had invested in the results to some extent Right. So, but you've like, I still think that in that situation you've drawn, there's not an organized competitive play, but like there is something informal shared between y'all that is functioning in much the same way where you're, you're internalizing the results and there is some, some way that those are impacting the way you treat each other in that, in that circle. Um, So serving the same purpose, I think. Yeah, I feel like to that point too, maybe one thing that it's important to touch on right now is uh, the importance of community. When I was drafting my definition, I wanted to be sure that I left room for individual competition because I think you can play solo games competitively. Um, But I think community is a strong aspect of competition. So like you're saying, Jake, the fact that as a group we had invested in and cared and said we it matters to all of us that we the outcome of these games are special and we're focused on improving. 
that community made it matter more. And that's part of that oh. like magic circle. It's interesting. Yeah. And I think a good example of uh, competitive solo games would be something like, um, well, I mean, I guess there's golf, which you're doing this is kind of a solo activity that you're doing with others. And, and another one I'm thinking about is uh, if, if you if you haven't seen the documentary, A Fistful of Quarters, about the competitive like Donkey Kong arcade scene, that it, it's fantastic and a really good example, I think, of that. Yeah, that movie's incredible. It's it's starting. That movie is also very interesting because it came out at a time where there was so much technology transition. So when you when I first watched it, it came out in like two thousand four, right? Um, and so much about our culture has changed. So it's this really interesting time capsule in a lot of ways now. But I I won't belabor the point, even though I love that movie. Well, let's um, hop into some of our personal history with competitive games. Um, just to perhaps share a little bit about our, ourselves with our audience. Uh, I think we both kind of consider ourselves competitive gamers to some extent. And uh, maybe just also just share sort of how we're coming at this conversation and, and the things that impact that. Yeah. Do you want to give a summary of your background first, Jake? Sure. Um, so I, I feel like I've been playing card games competitively like almost since I was forming memories um uh so my the, my very first exposure to competitive games was playing the pokemon trading card game uh when that first first came out and i i, I didn't do research on the timeline but i feel like i was literally in kindergarten first hmm. second grade when i was first had pokemon cards it really might have been kindergarten uh and uh, my dad would drive my friend and I like 30 minutes every weekend to uh, Kansas City from from where I lived. And um, we would play at a Pokemon tournament at like Toys R Us. And I barely knew how to play. I couldn't even, I don't know the, the rules of the game now. Um, but, you know, it was something like, well, like all the other kids, as I remember, were like trading cards and play. like I was actually like learning how to play this game um you know and, and and interested in the cards because of like their mechanics uh where when almost everyone else was just caring about the characters um and and i guess from that like that just sparked kind of like a love for me for card games and that saw me playing you know Yu-Gi-Oh and Magic the Gathering of course i feel like i always had Magic the Gathering cards somehow, like even before I knew how to play, like I just had them and would like make up games with them. Um, and pr- probably from like a friend's older brother or something like that. Uh, and so I, Magic was the one that I got heavily, heavily invested in. Uh, I, by the time I was in like middle school, I was the top ranked limited player in my city um, in, with the old school DCI. I know that because I, uh, found i uncovered recently in my parents basement like a letter i had written to myself in eighth grade uh you know that you're supposed to get like upon graduating high school or something and i just like talked about like how good i was at magic and then like and then like dissed some of my friends for (laughs) making questionable choices i was just super judgmental about that uh (laughs) (laughs) so you were being really indoctrinated into the culture of the time that's right yeah yeah um so i played magic through high school really i think um 
And it would often like come in conflict with me between like playing sports competitively and magic where I'd like have to have to choose and like, you know, really considered quitting soccer, um, which I was playing really competitively. And, you know, my parents had spent a lot of money getting me to play in these like elite clubs and taking me to tournaments all over the place. And I really wanted to quit soccer and focus on my Magic the Gathering career as I saw it at that time, <laughs> um, but end up sticking with. Um, and then I kind of didn't play games in college focused on that sort of, I played a lot of sports still, uh, and then kind of became interested after graduating just by random chance, got back into modern board games. And then from there found Keyforge, uh, which sort of lit that competitive spark for me again. Uh, which I, you know, with the trading card game, traveling to tournaments, doing well at some large tournaments that I kind of thought was over for me. And I guess that's kind of the one game I would say, though I haven't played over the past year, of course, that I would say like I'm current, like still somewhat a competitive player there. Um, that, that's that's kind of my history. When you were playing Magic really competitively, uh, were you like going to Pro Tour qualifiers and stuff? Yeah, I did Pro Tour qualifier. I never qualified for the Pro Tour, but I, I was just kind of like the the top eight hero, and like so, so I was definitely like known as like a good player throughout the region. And I think, uh, especially just because I was like young, really young compared to most of the people that were doing well in tournaments. Um, so and that was you know like something that I like absolutely like reveled in. Like I loved that, and you I could knew when I was sitting down against some like hardcore grinder that they were like just so scared because they like knew that I was a good player and also still not wanting to lose to a little kid. Yep. Yep. That's amazing. I, I, that was, it's really great hearing that whole background of your sort of competitive history, Jake. Obviously I know a ton about Keyforge because having met you through playing Keyforge, uh, but I didn't know that you played Magic the Gathering quite to that level and that you were the number one ranked limited player in middle school in your city. That's amazing. This is a small... Lawrence, Kansas, not the biggest uh Doesn't place. matter. Yeah. <laughs> I can say in Aloha, Oregon, I was not the number one ranked <laughs> limited player during my competitive play at Ready Day Games. Um, so my quick background, it's really interesting to me because I think our, our histories with games and competitive games are pretty similar. Um, but I'll start... A little bit earlier. So I came from a game playing family where we loved playing games, especially my grandparents. My grandfather adored games and had a, a closet full of board games. And we were always playing games. So he, in particular, really loved playing chess with me. And I loved playing chess with him. So we, I would say, played chess competitively together while I was growing up. And I think took a competitive spirit towards chess. He was reading chess books and teaching me openings. And I, I was in my elementary school and middle school chess clubs, though never played super competitively in high school. Uh, my family also loved playing like card games casually, but sometimes uh, on the special beach trips, we would play poker competitively and everyone would get like $5 worth of quarters and you'd play, you'd play until everyone was out. Normally we'd play like five card draw poker. Uh, so this is like pre Hold'em days. Very fun. Lots of people looking shifty eyed over uh, across the table. Really good memories of like playing card games actually competitively as a family. Uh, I, I also, my first competitive experiences with tabletop games outside of my family were also at Toys R Us playing the Pokemon TCG. 
I collected a bunch <laughs> of badges. I it basically like my dad would drop me off and go over to the bookstore and I would just play Pokemon with people. And I have vivid memories actually of one of my first times uh, having a rules discussion with another player. And I just like didn't read his Mr. Mime card, which had an ability, I think that nullified damage. And I made this decision and like, I must've been seven or eight and triumphantly was like, so I just like, I beat you. I beat your Mr. Mime. And he was like, he was probably 18 or 19. He worked at Toys R Us and he was like, you have to read the cards, <laughs> Brendan. Um, and like reached over the table and showed me the ability. And I was just like crushed. So that was a good lesson learned to like actually fully explore the game space that you're trying to compete in. Um, but so did that for a while, got into magic later. It's always like the older siblings who have these amazing collections where like somehow it drops down. I had a really similar experience with, with that and sort of played casually competitively with friends at school um and then sometimes if i could if i like big my friends could get them to go to the store to rainy day games and or in portland oregon with me um and that store was just magical i mentioned the name because it was one of the spaces when i was a kid where i just loved being most uh, even though it also at times made me vaguely uncomfortable just because being a kid around like lots of people older than you with no parents around can be strange uh but it was so fun just existing in that space and sort of learning and being around people who cared about games. I just loved being in, I, there were board games there. There was computer games there where people playing competitively on like rented computers. Um, and then later on in life, I also played sports growing up uh, a ton. Though I would say intellectually at that time, those things felt very separate to me. Um, and then later on, in college, I, I always had an interest in playing video games and playing video games competitively. Like I love uh, playing, I played a lot of MOBAs. So like uh, primarily Dota 2 and Heroes of New Earth before that in college with my with my roommates. Uh, and I would say we tackled that with a competitive spirit, though maybe not always the most healthy competitive spirit with the degree to which we, we would care. <laughs> and then uh, later on after that, got very invested in uh, a fighting game community for the game Pokemon Tournament, which is a Pokemon fighting game. On uh, First, it came out in Japanese arcades, then on the Nintendo Wii U, then on the Nintendo Switch, uh, and have played that fairly competitively for like the last de half decade. And eventually went on to commentate tournaments for that and care very much about the the outcome of those events and understanding the game. And also entered a bunch of tournaments myself before I was commentating and did fairly well competitively. And um, yeah, really enjoyed that. And then Keyforge is the other side. I have played a bunch of competitive Keyforge too. Uh, I didn't peak as high as Jake at a vault tour. I missed top cut by by one round at the one vault tour I was able to attend. Jake being the top cut master and getting you got second, right? At at a vault tour? I got uh fourth. Lot losing to the eventual champion. <sighs> I'm sorry I misremembered. And then I set it up wrong. That's right. But so so I would say I have a fairly robust. I was still very pleased with that result. <laughs> yeah, it was an amazing result. It was a, a super competitive event early on in Keyforge's history too. So, oh, yeah, I, yeah. But, well, that's awesome. It's yeah, it's crazy how much uh, are we share in in all yeah. these experiences. Um, you know, like that. I spoke to me so much. You're talking about like the name of the store like for me it was mass street comics which nice. doesn't even exist anymore which i'm like so distraught by but like i really feel like i grew up there almost as much as anywhere else like i would just go there after school and just hang for hours and talk to just i'm sure just drive the clerks <laughs> absolutely insane uh you know 
but I would just play against the clerks at Magic, you know, and we'd just for hours. <laughs> I remember clerks being like really weirded out by me coming in and asking for random singles. Like I would learn about old cards that existed. I'd be like, do you have killer bees? Uh, asking to buy like a specific magic card because I really liked that it was a green card that was a flyer. And they would always be like, Ugh, like, yeah, we'll get you some killer bees. We'll pull out the giant long box. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. I mean, having later worked at a comic book store and what a pain it is to go find old cards <laughs> in the archives. Like, I'm sure. <laughs> well, yeah, that's and, and it's interesting. I, I think too. Like, I de- I definitely didn't consider sports and games connected then in the way that I do now. But I I think that like it was in sports that I really developed like the the competitive side of my personality you know where coaches really teach you to like have like that killer instinct to like win like that's what matters like whatever you have to do like get out there and win Uh, and I think in some ways that has definitely inspired me to want to play games competitively in addition to having fun so what value of competitive play is there to players? Why do you think you are inspired to get good and improve at some of these games that you have? And, you know, would you kind of recommend people who aren't currently involved in competitive play to seek it out? Oh, this, I feel like this one question could have been a a topic of an entire episode. Um, I, I love that games are, have the malleability to be played for as many different reasons as there are. Um, and I I play games competitively for a lot of different reasons. And I definitely would encourage people to play competitively, but I think that playing competitively can also become... Um, it, it's easy for competitive play to eclipse maybe why you love playing games in the first place. And I've gotten there at times, but where like it becomes a negative thing and I am not having fun and not enjoying my time, but still can feel compelled to continue down the path. Uh, So it can be tough at times, at least historically for me to like separate those things, the frustration. And I think there's, I guess I'm doing a really bad job of actually answering your question, Jake, and kind of rambling. Um, But I, you're answering the next question about the uh, downsides and drawbacks. (laughs) Stick to the positives. Um, So I feel like one of the biggest things is humans, love measurable goals that we can achieve and competitive play in games are one of the most sort of um, apparent ways and easiest ways I think to set measurable goals and to see if you can achieve them even if they're like on very small levels and to actually feel a sense of growth and improvement um, have a, a reliable space to learn new things and to have creative outlets I think these are all really viable reasons what about for you Jake what's what's the value of play competitive play yeah i think i think you uh nailed it when you talk about improvement i think competitive play gives you a purpose to improve and get better and recognize recognizing the moments of improvement uh, and, and getting better in a measurable way are perhaps to me like the most satisfying aspect of like actually playing a game I mean, there are, there are other great things about the hobby, you know, in terms of like building relationships with people, hanging out with your friends. But like when you're talking about like the actual play of the game, I think it is those moments of improvement uh, that to me are the most satisfying and competitive play is like gives you 
the tools to get there. And whether that's just the opportunity to play a lot against really good players um, or, you know, content and, and, you know, other articles or resources that people have already been inspired to create. Uh, I, I think that is a really positive thing about competitive play. I think they can also be, um, I mean, let's in some games, like you can make a career out of it. Like if you yeah. want to talk about like, I mean, I think we should mention that. I mean, I think poker, for instance, if, if you want to like dedicate yourself to becoming like a world-class poker player, I'm not advocating that you should quit your job to do that at all. But I mean, a lot of people have, and you know, that's, that's a career for them. Um, I think that as the ability as the ability to for games to be played as spectacle is democratized through technology, which has like really, really happened in the last decade, um, the viability of people successfully playing games as their core career is so much more possible than ever before. Um, And people have played games as career for a while. Uh, Like there have been professional chess players where all they do is play chess and maybe uh, create content, whether it's writing books or creating lessons or teaching lessons around playing chess for, I I would, I don't know for sure, but I would guess at least a hundred years, maybe longer even. And I, I definitely think that that's viable. And it's very interesting that sort of competitive play is one of the ways that games can cross over into the entertainment sphere. Um, it, it like comes full circle where now you're playing games for the entertainment of others when they could be playing games that, for themselves. That's a great point. And I think um, that's another value of playing a game competitively is if there is a way to spectate, uh, you're generally going to get a lot more enjoyment out of that if you understand kind of the basics or even more than the basics about what makes these top level competitors skill sets so impressive uh and i I think the the point is really interesting too uh that you know the world is changing i'm not a futurist uh and not qualified to answer this question but you know i know the the types of jobs that people are going to be doing you know over the next hundred years are probably different from the jobs they've been doing over the last thousand. Um, and, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to imagine uh, computers and robots taking the place of like pl- playing games. Uh, I mean, obviously they can do it better, but like, it's not as interesting. I, I don't think battle bots is going to be taking over boxing anytime soon. I'll say <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it, it's really interesting. I'm reminded of like a, a people who will train their amiibos to fight in Super Smash Brothers uh, and then host tournaments with them or even chess computers playing chess against each other. Um, but I agree that those are really like uh, novelty right. sideshows compared to why people generally actually watch games. And I guess before we move on to the downsides, because I really think it is important that we mention the sort of positive aspects and and dig into them for a second because it these conversations can veer negative at times. But I think in terms of being a human, there's something really important to me just on like a daily level that makes me want to engage with and practice games. And in terms of psychology, the the iterative loop of like practicing and getting better um, and, and being able to be creative in games is generally a, a really healthy and wonderful hobby. It's like... I'm definitely yeah. compelled to do it. I do it all the time. <laughs> yeah. I, 
that's I think there's I'm trying trying the way to say this and I don't know if this is like a positive or negative thing so I'll say it here in the in between and it probably depends a lot on how on who you ask but like there is some element of me that just wants to win so bad yeah and it's not just to win it's like I want to beat the other person that I'm playing I don't know if that's like some kind of like innate like alpha mentality that's like to de- defeat someone in competition it you know that in and of itself is really satisfying uh and and like seeking out stronger competition and still winning and you know like trying to be the best like there's some element of that that is really satisfying i mean you know and i maybe it's because you know i'm so ingrained in like our capitalist system that like wants everyone to be super competitive like i don't know i'm not trying to like say this is like a morally great thing that we're all just trying to like you know metaphorically kill each other in the games we play all the time but there is something about just like that want to win that is fun yeah yeah definitely that's a whole nother podcast too about like why we play <laughs> games and and how we use them to figure out how we fit into the world that we exist in. It, it's like the psychology of game playing is very interesting. But yeah, maybe this is a pod, maybe this is a, a story for another time. But I'll say it. And I can always cut it. Uh, which is, I was playing um, Wavelength with some friends. I, I got my master's in social work, so I was playing uh, with a bunch of social workers. I'm not going to explain how Wavelength works. The question was like on a scale of positive quality to have to like bad quality to have and i had to like get them to guess just slightly positive and the the thing i chose was like competitive yeah and i was thinking like to me it's like you don't want to be like overly competitive nobody wants that like i've identified that as something like at times i've needed to work on to not be too competitive um but at the same time i think like there are some advantages to being competitive uh you know, that make it like to have a little bit of competitive nature in you is not horrible, not the worst thing, maybe a little positive. Uh, and so I, I hand it over to the group and like they all just like unanimously were like terrible, like competitive. That's like the worst quality a person could have and put it like almost not all the way to like the worst quality, but like very close to it. And I, you know, I was, I was like, I was shocked and they were like looking at me sideways for the rest of the night. (laughs) That's really (laughs) funny actually. Um, And I think goes to just show that like so much of when you enter the mindset of caring about competition or are, are a competitive person, there's, there's some degree of like your brain is operating in a different way. And I think from an outside perspective, it's really easy to see the downsides of competitiveness where you stop, you shut out all the other, even in just in games, you shut out all the other reasons why you might play games and you stop caring about all the other uh, aspects, namely mostly like fun. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. So let's jump over into some of those negative aspects of competitive play. Do you want to lead off on this one? Yeah, I feel like we've been sort of delving into it mostly, but I I feel like there's a potential for competitiveness um, when you're at the you're when you've pushed yourself hard enough in a game. uh, You, in some ways, there's so much noise surrounding games and game playing that to really get to the the top, top, top of a competitive space, sometimes you have to put on blinders to other aspects. So if you're trying to truly be the best in the world at a game. It behooves you to ignore things like doing things that are fun with the game at times 
there's also tons of reasons why I think that this logic falls down uh, in terms of gameplay. Like as a competitive player, it behooves you to have fun with the games that you play because then you'll want to keep playing them on some core level. And that's like why you did it in the first place. But regardless, it's easy to forget that. And we're talking about the downsides. It behooves you to ignore the fun aspects. And I've seen people who play competitive games, I think, forget why they enjoyed it in the first place and just get into a mind state where they're only seeing the negative aspects of the game because the psychology that they've created to cope with losing when they've put invested so much into winning at something uh, leads them to become increasingly negative, uh, tear down environments, tear down the game, tear down other people, and and to generally be like pretty pugnacious and like not pleasant. And no one likes being about people who are pugnacious and not pleasant. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the, the big one, right, is it can lead to just like a lot of toxicity uh, that would never be there if people were all just playing with the shared goal of, you know, wanting to, you have to want to win for the game to work in many cases. Um, but yeah, but, you know, beyond that, if everyone's there to have fun, things are, are not as likely to get toxic um, as when they're not. And, and I think also competitive play you have to be careful because it can really cause, there can really be a mismatch uh, if you're not careful in communities um, or, you know, in those magic circles you're creating. You know, it's it's one thing if you're at the highest level of play and everyone's kind of on the same page about that um, versus like, okay, I have, I have some like friends over uh, and, and we're playing in my living room and that's casual and everybody's on the same page about that. But like there are these spaces in between where it's like your your local Friday night magic tournament or or a little keyforge event at, at your game shop where it's like half the people there might be there for one type of competitive experience and the other half are not and that can create really bad feelings um one way or another and i think it's just you know those situations require thing require people to have a lot of emotional intelligence of, uh, about themselves and about what others might be feeling uh, which is difficult it, to ask of anyone in any situation uh so that, that those can those can be tough spots yeah definitely it uh there's so much uh, competitions like playing with fire there's there's so much that can be fantastic about fire but when used incorrectly it can be really destructive and devastating uh and so i don't know yeah. well one thing i wanted to bring up uh which i think is just really fascinating uh is is this uh, what do you, what do you call it? Like a line chart? Yeah, it, it's like a graph. A graph. Yeah, I'm gonna attempt to explain a graph to to people in an audio format. Uh, but this this graph is a concept called the Levine Trench or the Levine Ravine, and it was created by Eric Levine, who is a top level Magic the Gathering judge. Uh, and so on the y axis, uh, it has it's the niceness access. So at the, at the top is very nice. And at the bottom, it goes all the way down to horrible <laughs> misanthrope. Uh, and then at the X axis is skill of at magic. Uh, so it, it ranges from bad, which would be new or just hopeless. <laughs> Not very charitable uh, all the way to, you know, in, in towards the you know mediocre then almost good so somebody who's top eating pro tour qualifying to you know actually good top level pros and everything and the way this graph charts is when people are bad and new uh, generally people are very nice and get along great you know that's kind of that uh, living room scenario 
which we were just describing. Then as people become more mediocre, winning at Friday Night Magic, doing okay in some events, uh, the average, the niceness really drops down. It's still nice, nice to average. However, when you get to almost good, the PTQ top eighters and the people who are making day twos but not doing exceptionally well, uh, this chart just shoots down to horrible misanthrope uh, territory. So that's the, the Levine Ravine right there. And then when it gets back to actually good, it shoots all the way back up to very nice. And I think, yeah, go ahead. What, what does that, how does that strike you? Yeah. Uh- it's this when you first showed me this graph, this chart, I was like, wow, this is so incisive uh, and so accurate. And I, I think it graphs really well onto almost all competitive game playing communities I've seen and interacted with uh, it. And I, I have a feeling it actually has to do with the the loop of how people get better at games in general, too. Like when you get to the the other end of the trench there's such an incentive to just work with other people to get better um, because you know at that point that you have so much more to gain from collaboration with others in general. Um, and I think at the, the the front side of the trench, you your brain can trick you into sort of thinking like you got here because you're the best at this thing um, when usually that's completely fallible. And, and this goes back to community, right? Like people get good at games and care about exploring games because playing with others makes you better. What do you think about this this chart? Yeah, like you, I just think this this chart chart maps so well onto my experience in every game community that I've ever been in and including sports. Yeah. Uh, and Ugh, yeah. And I think like I, I agree. I I hadn't thought about it the way that you just described um with actual like how how you your brain learns and improves. But I, I was thinking about more in, in the way you described before, which when you get to a certain level, uh, you stop, you, you, you lose sight of mm. um, the things that make the game fun in the first place. And you've changed your reward structure, your reward incentive to keep playing to being so goal oriented and focused on winning uh, that you've spent all this time and to improve uh, but you're not getting the result of winning, which is the only thing at that point that would possibly satisfy you. Uh, and that's just kind of a uh, self-fulfilling prophecy then that's just going to keep driving you down and down more, like spending more time not enjoying what you're doing to achieve wins, like not winning, spending more time, you know, and and that's just a like a bad place to be. Uh, and And I think sadly, you know, these often because these are people that are good at the local level. Like I think these are the kind of people that you typically see as community leaders at the local level, uh, which can just really <sighs> spread toxic culture so fast. Yeah. That was a, a really insightful comment, Jake. Um, and I, one thing that I think is important to mention too, is as insightful as this may feel for people who've played competitive games historically, is that this is a snapshot of our competitive experiences at this point in time in the particular Western culture in which Jake and I have existed uh, and, and sort of learned about and played games. And we've talked about how similar our experiences are. Um, and this is how I think this feels very true, but it doesn't have to be true of how we play games culturally. It's just true of right now. And I would love to see if this, if this trend shrank 
in the next 20 or 30 years as maybe you were talking, we're not futurists, um, but I think our relationship with humans, uh, as with games as humans is going to really change over the course of the next 20 or 30 years as our society changes and we have more time to play games and more games to play, more ways to interact with games. And I would love to see the cultural cost of people being horrible misanthropes uh, be decreased. There's no reason for it. It doesn't make you better at the game to be a jerk. Uh, it, it's just so like I this is something that I think as people who care about competitive games, the more we can remember that being a jerk doesn't make you good. It just makes you a jerk. The better it will be. And that's like a, such a simple like approximation. But like this would be so nice for everyone if in competitive hobbies we could uh, shrink the trench. Yeah. And it, I mean, obviously, this is a generalization. Not ev- yeah, It doesn't apply to sure. every single person. And I think it's something that if you know about it, it's something you can actively avoid and say, like, wait a second, like, this is happening <laughs> to me. How do I get out of there? Because I've been there. You mentioned, you know, you've kind of been in that headspace. I certainly have. Uh, and one thing, which is similar to something you said earlier, that I tell every uh, team that I captain in sports is you don't have fun because you win you win because you have fun yeah which is so cheesy but like i think that's the best advice you could really give anyone who's who's trying to get into something competitively uh and it it, it's not that's not even like the that's not even a like metaphorically like literally win like you literally will succeed more if you're having fun doing it not just like you're winning because you're having fun though that's also true yeah definitely Okay, uh, so let's get into this. Last segment, we're going to do a top five list where we're each going to share our top five uh, factors that make a game suited for competitive play. All right, my number five is presence of dramatic moments. Uh, I think this is important for the longevity of the game. You're just more likely to have fun longer with something that's that's creating dramatic, interesting moments, and also for the spectator side of things, which which helps uh, build a competitive community and scene. Uh, there's a lot of games I love. Like one I was thinking about is like Azul. It's one of my favorite games to play, but there just aren't really dramatic moments in that game. Uh, you know, sometimes oh, I have to take a bunch of negative points, dang. But like, I, I have no interest in watching like the Azul World Championships. That just doesn't hold any interest to me. Uh, where there's a lot of games that I think you know are are less interesting to play that I'd have a lot more interest watching because like I, you you watch something for drama, and I think that kind of plays into uh, why you'd want to get involved in something yourself. So I found this comment so so insightful because I. I sort of like intuitively understood this. And I think I approach this list more from like a mechanical game design perspective. And you approach it slightly more from like a, I like to play games competitively perspective. And for me, your comment, Jake, that presence of dramatic moments uh, brings together uh, two different points that are in my first point, which is uh, as to, for games to be played competitively, I think they need to have a sense of player agency. Uh, so they have to have predictability. So high luck, high skill games, we, we poker, key forge, games like this can absolutely be played competitively, right? Uh, players have a strong sense of agency in those games. Low luck and high skill games like chess and go uh, also can be played competitively. Um, it doesn't, I think luck and skill are uh, on different spectrums. We've talked about that a little bit on the show. Um, and I think that your comment of presence of dramatic moments gets to in a lot of times in really 
uh, high skill, high luck games like poker or Keyforge, these dramatic moments come from uh, instances of, of randomness, sometimes that the players have planned for being super exciting, top decking a card or the final card that comes out in a game of poker is the exact card that you need and you, you, you just win because of it. And you made a calculated risk that created that instance or in low luck, high skill games like chess, these dramatic moments often come uh, from blunders or mistakes, right? Like in, in a chess tournament, uh, I've actually, during the pandemic, been watching a little bit more chess, though I haven't paid attention to it for years because chess is kind of having a moment thanks to the Queen's Gambit and on YouTube and all of the events going online, which is really cool. Um, and in this recent tournament, there was this grandmaster who just made this outrageous blunder. Um, and it's just a shocking moment when at this, and dramatic moment, when at this high level, someone who's so good messes up so badly. And it's sort of like on the sports side of things where like a player just like, an NBA player who's like a renowned three-point shooter just airballs a three. It's dramatic and it's exciting when the prowess yeah. doesn't match your expectations. Um, here also, I, I wanted to mention, so my, one it's like 99% free throw shooter and this one's to win the championship. <laughs> and they miss. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. I really quickly, I wanted to mention to here. So sense of player agency, uh, Political games can can be high in skill, a game like Diplomacy, and some people play games like Diplomacy competitively, um, and that's great. Humans will play many things competitively, and I'm sure there's great fun to be had in playing Diplomacy competitively, but political games don't usually make good competitive games because political games have a high degree of unpredictability in their play. Um, and that's where you have a less agency as a player if someone can make a decision within the game that helps dramatically uh, affect the outcome. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I think the your your point about the drama and high luck, high skill games with the top deck just made me think like, heck, Yu Gi Oh made a whole like twenty seasons about that <laughs> the drama of a top deck. <laughs> so and, it's definitely cute. Yeah, and the phrasing like "believe in the heart of the cards" like that moment perfectly describes what you, what you feel as a game player. Totally in those moments. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, my number four reason that a game can succeed as a competitive game is that the metagame is dynamic. So I want to have a dynamic metagame, um, meaning that there are different strategies that can be viable and what strategies can vi are viable can change over time. And there's numerous ways that this can happen. Uh, one could simply be just like the influx of, of new cards or expansions, like the Magic the Gathering or Keyforge model. Um, but there, there's also a way that... Uh, some set games can evolve as uh, different strategies become powerful uh, and then people figure out a way to combat them. Uh, I, th I think, I don't know much about chess, but I imagine that happens in chess a lot. Uh, another one I was thinking about is the video game Super Smash Bros. Melee, which is uh, an old school GameCube game, right? It doesn't have a digital version, so you can't patch it or anything. Uh, and yet that game has the top, tier characters of that game while has been set to a select few the best amongst them is something that has been changing over time consistently since the game first came out in like 2002 to the point that i, I think uh you know in maybe it was like 2016 uh a character a player using the character marth won one of the big grand championships and like marth had never won a super major tournament in like eight years you know, and, and but people have learned more and shifted things and that that became 
viable again. And then that changes everything and people are back to the drawing board. So, so interestingly, this is a space where our lists, I think, uh, really interact or uh, intersect with each other. And I've split your point just now into two sub points. <laughs> so I have two that factor into what you're saying. So one side of what you're saying, I would describe as strong decision spaces. Uh, so it is important for a game to be competitive that it's perceived as a balanced game. So it has numerous viable strategic card and tactical decisions within the decision space. Um, so I think half of what you were saying is that, and then I'm going to, I'm jumping in front of you for my third one. Uh, and that is uh, games to be competitive have to have high durability. Uh, and what I mean by that is that players can meaningly improve over time and there's many links on the skill chain. So as you were describing Jake, in terms of Smash Bros, people have been playing that game since 2001. And in that time, a lot has been discovered about the game. And this happens in any game's competitive journey. A game is played earnestly by a community of players. They explore the game. They learn more. Sometimes when they learn more about the game, the uh, what they learn about the game makes it less competitive, right? Uh, maybe less competitive isn't the right word. What they learn about the gameplay maybe makes it so players of less skill can more easily beat players of greater skill. Maybe there's a bug or an exploit that makes it easier for players of lower skill to defeat those of higher skill more this reliably. Be like making it like more solved. I, I think is so, that different. I think that that is uh, like a really strong, that's like the, the, the destination, the end point of like a low durability game, like eventually it gets solved. But I mm -hmm. think that there's rungs on this ladder too. Um, I don't know how much we want to get into this or how appropriate this is, but like in Smash Bros, the, in, in Melee specifically, Ice Climbers, there's an exploit with uh, change grabs or, and then there's just an infinite where if you, if you like basically get your characters right, right, perfectly, right. yeah, you can- Like a one hit kill. It's a one hit kill. Great. Thank you. Much more simplified. I don't have to go into the nuance. That's a that's a a technique that players can learn and then beat players of a higher perceived skill. Um, I actually think that that makes the game from a spectator perspective more interesting to watch. This is like we're, that's not open that can of worms. Um, <laughs> but I think it's important that games for their competitive nature have high durability. So the flip side of this is like in the competitive game I play, Pokemon Tournament, a few years in, we discovered this technique called that we call perfect blocking. And that's uh, if you're doing an attack in the field phase of the game, it's a two phase game, but basically if you block at the perfect moment right before someone attacks, uh, you can you take less hit stun and you can act more quickly. So that meant you could punish new moves. You could um, basically it made the mind games deeper and more interesting. So that's an instance where it was uh, a high durability development in the metagame because it meant that higher skilled players, uh, the skill level went up. It didn't go down with new metagame discovery. So it's important for competitive games for the skill level to stay the same or to increase it could decrease and that will be okay. It might upset some competitive players. And as Jake said, if it decreases so much as to be a solved game, it's no longer a game. One really quick way to think about this too is how many tiers of strength of players are there in the competitive environment? Are there 30 tiers of players? That's a really large, as Richard Garfield calls it in his book with Scaphalias Characteristics of Games, one of my favorite books on games. That's a really long skill chain. Uh, then there's other games that have lower skill chains. So like that means the best players in the world could lose to someone who's not as good. And maybe there's only five tiers between it. Um, yeah, that's great. And I, I think, you know, a, a good way, the way that's typically kind of referred to is like there's levels to this, yep. uh, which is 
Uh, I think one of the fun things about whenever you first get into a competitive game, whatever it is, you're probably the best amongst your group of friends and think you're good. And then you go to a tournament where people are really involved in this and you realize, you know, holy cow, like this world just got so much bigger because, you know, there, there's, there are levels to this. Yeah. And then you might say like, oh, he reached a new level or like on commentary, even I've said that before. And I love that because it's one of the ways that I think as game players and game playing culture, uh, the way that we experience games, we're ahead of how we know how to talk about games and intuitively describe them. So I think this concept is one that we all really intuitively know, but doesn't actually get verbalized and talked about very much. Right. Uh, And we've been talking a lot about video games, but I think all this is, of course, like totally applicable to tabletop games and and poker and, you know, anything, anything else there as well. Yeah. It's not simply, this is a board game podcast, but we like video games and it's all related. Okay. So my next one, very, very related to what I was just saying is that, so this is number three for me, which is that a skill, the skill ceiling is visible. And what I mean by this is um, so just like we were talking about with, with those levels, uh, to the game or, you know, did, what were you saying? Hide your ability. Oh, the tree. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Or the, de- uh, yeah. Decision chain. <laughs> decision. Yeah. The skill chain. The skill chain. Skill chain. Yeah. That's it. Skill chain is, um, like you have to be able, I think for a game to really succeed competitively, uh, you need to be able to understand, when you're experiencing like high level gameplay Mm. like why that is cool like why these players are so amazing even if you can't achieve that yourself and i think uh you know i like you have been watching a little bit of chess videos on on youtube and they do such an amazing job of kind of like breaking down these high level games to to explain like what's going on into your in in the heads of these players uh, as moves are playing out that really makes that competitive game like understandable to a, to a casual viewer. Whereas if you're just watching that game of chess and it's just seeing the moves go by, like it would literally mean nothing to me. Uh, and, and I think some games are, are better at this than others. I think that's actually one of the things that Keyforge uh, really suffers from is that a lot mm. of people play it for the first time and they think like, it's the skill floor is so low that you play it, somebody you win or you lose. Uh, and, and you just kind of think to yourself, there's not a lot there. Uh, and like, I would say like Keyforge after I played a whole lot is like one of the highest skill ceiling card games that's out there. Uh, it, you know, obviously I'm biased cause I'm a part of that community, but a lot of people in that community hold the same kind of opinion who have played a lot of different games, but it's not always easy to explain uh, and I won't go in depth into why it says we're definitely going to cover Keyforge on a later episode, uh, but it's not easy to explain like why something happened, like why an opponent did a certain move if you're sitting across the table from it, or even if you're watching it on Twitch or, or whatever. Uh, so I think having that the visible skill ceiling is something that can really attract people to a game and, and make them want to achieve that higher level of play. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense to me. I And it, it's interesting because I think it's something that's not necessarily um, mandatory to a competitive game, but it, it makes it more, maybe that also increases the durability of the competitive space too. Okay, sorry, my next one. Uh, I was just thinking about your point. 
So my next one is room for creativity and creative play, individual player expression. Uh, I think, so I have a toy game for you. A toy game is a, this is another Richard Garfield thing. Uh, it's a game made to illustrate a point. So my my toy game, this is a high skill, low luck game. It has 50 viable paths to victory. But at the beginning of the game, you make a decision to go down one of those paths. Um, these are not, toy games are not actually games that you would play. You make a decision to go down one of those paths, and then you have to make 50 actions that are completely rote. They're, it, it, they're just decided actions that you have to take within the game. Uh, and you don't necessarily know what the outcome will be at the end. Maybe the actions are hidden behind a board or something in this toy game. Uh, and then you see who wins. Uh, I think that that's not as interesting as a game with 50 viable paths where you have creative agency to make decisions within that space. Maybe not the best toy game. I'll work on it. But I, I stand by my point of room for creativity and creative play. I think one of the reasons why humans come to games and why we stick with playing competitive games uh, is because we learn about ourselves from games and we put a piece of ourselves into games. And that's just an important part about game playing and being a, a human. Totally. I, I completely agree. I think, um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's, it's really fun when you can see someone expressing themselves in a game. I think this happens a lot in magic and why part of the reason why that game is still like such a premier example of competitive games is because, you know, there are so many choices even before the game starts that where the game's like, who are you? Uh, you know, are you a blue mage? Like what kind of, are you an aggressive type player? What, how are you, how are you going to do this? And, and a lot of people, uh, you know, they're, they're obviously top level players that are just going to play like whatever is the best right now. But I think if you look at the history of Magic the Gathering, there's a lot of players that uh, typically go for the same types of strategies or find the most success uh, when they're using uh, one type of strategy. And I, I think that's really fun. Yeah. Uh, similar tied to this is like one of the reasons why I love Pokemon Tournament so much is uh, the game has so much room for creative player expression. And I think part of that is because there's lots of viable strategic decisions in the game. Uh, so everyone has access to the same moveset, but say you you put a Charizard player in front of me and a Mewtwo player in front of me, chances are, if you tell me that they're two top players, you don't even have to say that. If there's two players that I know and there's no names on the screen and you don't tell me who they are, I could probably guess who's playing just by the gameplay and the decisions they make. And you might be thinking, that's ridiculous. I don't believe you. But it's it's just you can see through the course of play who by the decisions they're making and even like the movements that they're doing. Um, and I think that that's one of the things that brings me back and is sort of an ineffable a joy of games. Yeah, it can also change. It also like actually affects the decision space, because if you can identify the way somebody's playing, yeah. you might be able to predict what they're doing. And if you as the person who your opponent is trying to predict you, if you can then shift it up. Right. If you're a really aggressive player going for the most aggressive lines in whatever board game or video game or sport you're playing uh, and then are able to like slow things down, you can completely throw off and confound your opponent um, and get them to make poor choices. Totally. All right. So my number two most important thing that makes games suited for competitive play is that there is a low barrier of entry to having fun. Uh, and this doesn't mean that it has to be a light game. Uh, you know, it can there can still be like a significant learning curve. But I think that in order for a game to to be really suited for for competitive play, uh, you need for people to be able to to get in there 
uh, just so they can under have an understanding of of what's happening uh, in the competitive scene. I think that's something that, of course, brings people into it. It helps with people wanting to watch the game. I think you know even even, and I think it really helps if that learning process itself is fun. You know, I've been thinking a lot about disc golf. It's something I've picked up uh, recently, and like you could be the worst disc golfer in the world, but at the end of the day, like that sport is literally like I'm taking a nice walk through the woods and chucking a frisbee at a basket, and it's just so fun to suck at. Uh, and and you know, and that I think is gonna bring so many more people into the game to start building up that community uh, than something that you know only starts to get fun after lots of time and study i think there are some exceptions that like i think chess maybe is an example of a game that isn't super fun right off the bat but i think that might be an argument for like you know would chess be a like the you know most important competitive board game in the world if it came out in 2021 i think probably most I wonder if most, I don't know if most people would agree, but I would personally think it would not be. Yeah, no, I think that's really interesting. That is exactly what came to my mind when you first mentioned this point. And I think that chess just has a lot going for it that makes some of the reasons why it fit came out today, it would be more difficult. But also just in terms of like, if you want a new game to be played competitively, people being able to play it and then have fun right off the bat is so important because the competition for our game playing and our competitive game playing it is so high. Okay, so I didn't order mine. I should address that. Um, so my <laughs> my final one, not not my first one, but my final one is that it can games can be played iteratively. Um, and this is what I mean by this. Uh, I it's this is not an absolute. Long games can be competitive. Long board games can be played competitively. Um, but I think in general, it is easier for shorter games to be competitive because it smooths randomness in the game. So highly skilled players are able to invest in it and be okay with a high degree of randomness with an opportunity for the randomness to be even out. Um, and this is true even of games like chess where randomness comes from uh, from player choice. There's there, Chess is not a game with no randomness, right? Because if you have a decision between uh, two perceived equally viable paths, two e- perceived equally viable decisions that you can make, uh, then you are functionally making a random decision within the outcome of that space. And the skill is knowing when things aren't equally viable. Um, but I think in general, um, like in sports, you could view the reason why most sports are structured how they are, like basketball. Um, obviously, you're playing one game of basketball, but every possession, each time a team has a ball, that's sort of like one atom of the game, one unit of gameplay. So you get lots of those over the course of the game to see who's better at doing that core gameplay loop of of playing basketball, of your team having the ball and trying to get the ball in the hoop. So even though you don't play three basketball games in a day, you might have, oh gosh, it's been a long time since I've looked at basketball stats, 30 possessions, 40 possessions over the course of a game. Jake's like, no way, Brendan. I think up. 60 possessions to see how it plays out. Um, Similarly, like card games are often played in hands, right? So like trick-taking games and and poker are played really quickly in, in many hands. So you can sort of see how, how that will play out. Um, I think chess is actually a good example of a longer competitive game. The, the atom of chess is much lower. Um, it, it takes a little bit longer than a lot of games. There's no one core gameplay loop that you're doing over and over in that game. Uh, 
MOBAs. So we, I mentioned them earlier, but like Dota or even League of Legends are, are games that have a longer gameplay loop. They're usually around an hour, but those have been getting shorter over time uh, in terms of new designs because it's easier to have competitive g- games uh, if they can be played iteratively. Other games, you know, you'll play fighting games are played in uh, best of three. They're pretty quick games, but you'll play whoever can win two out of three gets to advance in a bracket or best of five or round robin for card games, these sort of things. What do you, yeah. what do you think, Jake? I think that's a, a great point. And I'm uh, just reflecting on the Keyforge community and one of the kind of the biggest challenges that yeah we have there is is the length of the game, which is that, you know, it's typically games can be too long to have three rounds in an hour like they do at magic tournaments where you can play best two out of three but playing best out of one doesn't often feel like it's a like it's satisfying it feels too random the outcome of the game um so people really struggled to figure that out and i think you know that really does speak to why this like iterative model you know even though in keyforge i guess you're you're trying to forge three keys first like that each one of those is kind of a mm. battle but i think it does speak to the fact that like you know this is important to a competitive game uh, just from like the perception of fairness to the players yeah interestingly i think chess is a good example i think low low luck games tend to do better with uh make our low luck games can be played competitively easier because you don't need the iteration to smooth them out. So that's why games like chess or even some MOBAs, which are generally known for being really low luck experiences, uh, work better in terms of competitive play being long than something that's really high luck, high skill like Keyforge. Because like you're saying, Jake, it just feels bad if like you born out of a year of play, know you're the better player, but then you have one game and it goes the other way. That can be really unsatisfying. Yeah. Yeah, and I think another good example of that is like the NFL overtime yes. rules that like everybody hates because it's just whichever team gets the ball, if you score a touchdown, Sucks. then you win the game. And everyone's like, well, what about the other team? That's not fair. And it's yeah. not, it, you know, uh, and uh, people definitely are very perceptive to that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, my very last one, and I'll make it quick, is the community. The community that surrounds a game, in my mind, is like the most important factor of uh, what can make a game succeed competitively. And I guess I get that this is a little bit of like, is it the chicken or the egg? Like a community is not going to form around a game that isn't suited to competitive play. But at the same time, like if there aren't people evangelizing a game, if there aren't people out there signing up for tournaments, if there aren't people hosting tournaments, uh, then, you know, if there's not a big structure, you know, ranking players, like all the then, you know, less people are going to want to get involved in it. Um, I think, you know, publishers supporting games and, and doing tournaments is, is another thing that you can uh, do to to support a game uh, and help build that. Uh, so that's one aspect of it. And then the other aspect of it is just like who is actually in the room playing a game and kind of uh, the way that they serve as ambassadors for that community. Uh, I think a huge problem that a lot of people have with competitive games is because like for most of my life, I think like if, if I was wanting to, and probably still the case now, but if I was wanting to get involved in a competitive card game, like then I'm like signing up for a magic, the gathering tournament or like a Yu-Gi-Oh tournament. Um, and, and those just, those com- communities have like an, an earned uh, reputation, I think of being, not necessarily the most welcoming 
uh, to anyone, but, you know, especially if you're somebody that doesn't like fit into that normal demographic uh, of, you know, magic gathering players. So like, you know, women, people of color uh, have had hard times getting involved with that because of prejudice, racism, and just like idiocy of people in, in those. And, you know, same with video game communities, same with sports fans. Like this is a problem that goes well beyond magic, uh, the gathering, but uh, you know, all those things, I think, just do so much to make those communities unwelcoming to people. Uh, and and you might be thinking like, well, like, hold on, like magic, that's like the biggest community. So maybe that isn't a big problem. To which I would say, like, can you imagine like if it was a welcoming space, like how much bigger it would be, how much more fun people would be able to have engaging in that hobby? Uh so yeah, so that that's kind of to me like the biggest factor. And again, this is subjective, but like that's the biggest factor for me for like what I want to get involved with. And it, it's been that way my whole life, dating back to when I had to pick between playing baseball and soccer in you know high school. And you know I went with the place where like I had I had more friends and enjoyed the vibe more. Well said, very well put, Jake. Um, yeah, I don't have a ton to to add to that one. I think you you really hit the nail on the head. And I think in in some ways game playing spaces are just a reflection of our of our culture overall and our this sort of sub aspect where lots of um things that I need to to change are are amplified and and happen within our culture. So, yeah. So on that note, uh <laughs> boy, really ending on a high here. Uh, okay wait no we have to end on a high note what's your your one favorite competitive moment okay do you have one in mind that you can yeah i can i can go first um so uh, a favorite competitive moment i said i could go first so that i have but i don't have one um okay wait no i a favorite competitive moment of mine uh is actually from playing pokin I know that this is a board game podcast, but I think in these episodes, I hope, listener, that you'll invite us to talking about the games more generally, mostly because I think Jake and I care about games generally a lot. And I think a lot of you probably do too. But uh, one of my favorite moments that harkens to what Jake is saying was uh, two years ago when we were able to do offline events, I was uh, at a tournament in Washington, D.C. It was called World. So there were players from all over the world. And I was watching one of the best American players and one of the best Japanese players playing each other. And because of time constraints, they couldn't play on uh, the main stage where things were being recorded. But everyone really cared about this match. And there were probably 80 people huddled around just being dead silent out of respect for the players. Um, and just being in that space and being around people who really cared about the outcome uh, just makes me so happy. And then the transition from when that results happened and everyone exploded into excitement. Uh, it's just fun. And the energy is fun and competitive games uh, I think can be so, so wonderful. That's awesome. Um, I think I, I, I can't pick one, but I played in this, uh, kickball league in yeah. lawrence kansas called the Ka valley kickball league uh and it is the most like just magical magic circle that you can ever imagine it's um 32 teams they might have expanded it to 36 all sponsored by like local businesses um and every sunday we, they basically get all the fields across 
town uh, and, and have these like kickball games. Um, and then at the end of the day, there's one game that's pre-selected as the game of the week. Uh, that's at this like old school baseball stadium, like, you know, this like 200 year old, not 200, like a hundred year old building uh, and all the teams gather there. And it's like a scene out of like the Warriors where it's like everyone's sitting together with their jerseys and like watching kickball, uh, which is like just like the perfect mix of like casual and competitive, like because it could be two, you know, they'll pick two of the best teams, which are like highly, highly competitive, like, you know, D1 and professional athletes uh and uh or two of like you know the the lesser team which are you know just people out there having a good time and either way it's just like the crowd just roars and goes crazy and you know turns people into just like absolute like heroes for one night it's hard to put it into words but like that like place like i think more than anything else just like reflects my heart as a as a competitive gamer, whether I'm in the stands or playing, it's like, it's my favorite place in the world. That's amazing. That's so awesome. From the old school uh, stadium and everyone being invested. I think that really hits the nail on the head, Jake, that the best thing about competition, even beyond sometimes games being explored or pushing yourself is just how competitive games bring us together. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, on a positive and uplifting note, we'll end this episode of decision space thank you for joining us uh, for this conversation you can follow us uh on twitter at decision spa that's decision spa and come get and cozy please, yeah come get cozy in the decision spa and uh until next week uh pl- please plan to join us for a, a kind of a follow-up conversation on magic the gathering uh have a good week and play some competitive games you are now exiting the decision space Thanks for listening. Please take care and enjoy the rest of your game.